This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. Green Bay was not an easy place to coach at the time in the 1950s, and there was a lot of interference. They probably blamed the coaches and blamed the executive committee and probably blamed God Almighty, you know. During those lean years, it was tough. When you're winning, it's easier to put up with some stuff, um, but when you start to lose, um, it, it probably just came to a point where it was a time for change. Curley was certainly way ahead of his time. It just didn't work out for a lot of reasons. Nothing lasts forever. Gentlemen, this is the most important play we have. The play we must make, though. Hut, hut, hut. The Vince Lombardi Trophy is coming home where it started. It was a total loss. Went up in flames, 50 feet high. Smoke billowing 100 feet high. January 24th, 1950. Just four years after the Packers purchased the Rockwood Lodge as a training site, a fire destroys it. The wiring, the faulty wiring that caused the fire, not much was uh, actually safe. It was an accidental fire. An insurance settlement at roughly $75,000 helps, for the moment, stabilize the franchise financially. But new struggles are beginning, just two months after the contentious board of directors vote to retain Curly Lambeau as the Packers head coach. Lambeau drops a bombshell. February 1st, 1950. After 31 years of continuous service, 29 is head coach. Curly Lambeau resigns from the Green Bay Packers. From his resignation letter, differences of opinion have brought about a dangerous disunity of purpose within the corporation, one which, in my opinion, threatens the existence of the club. Curly supposedly was offered a new two-year contract, but the kicker there was that he was never physically preferred that contract. So he went to the league meetings in Philadelphia that year without a contract and came back as a head coach, vice president, and general manager of the Chicago Cardinals. In those years, we were not having the greatest seasons, and I think pressures build up, and uh, Curley had an offer from the Chicago Cardinal, and I figured, forget about the pressures, and he, he took the Cardinal job. He's the first NFL coach to win 200 regular season games. 
When he left Green Bay, he had six NFL championships, more than anybody else in the game. Just think of the vision that he ended up having that um, nobody else maybe saw. How did he get Clark Hinkle from Bucknell, Don Hudson from Alabama to come here? He was very, very good at scouting talent, personally. And he did a lot of that in his earlier days before the Packers became very successful. He was a great recruiter, charming guy, and uh, new football. That's uh, proof of how long uh, the team was successful, uh, 31 years and only had three losing seasons. You've got to give great credit to the leadership of Curly Lambeau. I mean, he came into this league and, and he just took charge of this franchise. Lambeau coached the Packers to six NFL championships, three before the playoff system, three after, won 226 games, lost 132, tied 22. Only Don Shula, George Hallis, Bill Belichick, and Tom Landry have won more. From 1919 to this point, it's it's been Curly Lambeau and the Green Bay Packers. What Curly accomplished as a coach is just is amazing. There were a number of people out there that didn't know if the team could continue without him. He was so important to the club. He was very instrumental in the Packers surviving. You know, Lambeau had been the Packers. He was the right mix of showman, promoter, uh, football person. I'm not sure that the Packers survive without that total package. Curly Lambeau's resignation sends shockwaves across the NFL, but is less of a shock to those in Green Bay. For Packers fans, it's time. The game was passing him by. His Notre Dame box was outdated. He never really made the complete conversion to a team. If he did, it was just his last couple years, and those were disastrous seasons. Towards the end, he was also very instrumental in maybe the Packers' demise. He could have driven the team into the ground if he was around long enough. Got the feeling it was his, his team, you know, and of course the people on the board felt it's our team, Green Bay's team. It became clear to him that uh, he was not going to win the, uh, the battle to turn this into a private corporation. It leads to contentious feelings or mixed feelings uh, among the community, the board of directors, and you, you, you wonder where the franchise is going to be headed. Where do they get the next head coach? Are they going to be able to field a winner? There's all these questions. You know, any great organization uh, is not ever totally dependent on any one individual. And uh, even if the individual is, is brilliant and dominating and charismatic. Successfully replacing Lambeau proves to be nearly impossible. The Packers organization faces a host of challenges on and off the field. After Curley left, though, in the 50s, th this franchise was, was just not getting anything accomplished. They were still losing players to the Canadian Football League. Packers defense in the 50s was the worst. Part of that may have been because they didn't have the money to go out and sign the players that they had before. They gave up more yards. They gave up more points. They had more games where they allowed 30 or more points than any team in the league. Their defense, for the most part, was in shambles. We had fallen on hard times. I would go to the games at County Stadium, the place would be half empty. There just wasn't great interest in it. One exception to the fan disinterest, beating Curly Lambeau. In 1950, um, when Curly had gone to the Cardinals, he comes back and plays an exhibition game 
with the Packers here in 1950 and 51. Worst team in the league was the Cardinals. They won 31 games. The Packers won 32. So both teams were right at the bottom. Clearly didn't go to, to Chicago and make this great turnaround. He had losing records and proved that the game had passed him by. The organization turns its attention to addressing its mounting debt. They launched their third public stock drive. The goal? Raise $200,000, half from Green Bay, the other half from Milwaukee, around the state, and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, all to keep the Packers in Green Bay. It was tough for us to remain competitive because uh, just the money factor. My dad at that time told my brother, we've got to protect this franchise for Green Bay through whatever uh, methods uh, we have. The Milwaukee businessmen, what they were hoping to do was keep the Packers alive so once County Stadium was built, they could move the team to Milwaukee. Some of the people um, in the league probably looked at Green Bay's uh, board as a bunch of bumpkins. In Green Bay, they were selling stock to keep their team and to make sure it survived. They were all shrewd businessmen. Without a ton of resources, they kept the franchise in Green Bay. This time, they went out to the masses and sold stock at the paper mills, at the depots, and knocked on doors downtown, got the blue-collar workers to pitch in their $25. The lady who brought in, I think it was all quarters, in a container to buy her share of stock. And there's a young man that donated like $100 to the organization, just a young man that didn't have a lot of money. My dad went out and hustled the, the stock sales, literally sold stock to his friends, and it was worthless stock, of course. <laughs> it pays no dividends. It will never have a capital gain. You'll never make a nickel. Basically a gift to the team, but there's people that came forward, bought stock that didn't have a lot of money, but they wanted to see the Packers survive. The Packers received stock pledges of more than $104,000, most of it from Green Bay. They have big plans for the Milwaukee area, but sell just over $3,000, aside from the 200 shares Miller Brewing Company purchases. It is pretty remarkable that they created this unique entity, a, a stock nonprofit corporation, and kept the franchise alive. Packers really became community-owned in terms of the Joe Fan had now invested in the team. 1950, the Packers announced Ladies' Day, the first in the history of professional football. Packers needed every fan they could get, so they cultivated female sports fans like no other team. First women's quarterback club in the country. Close to 700 women attend the first meeting. Art Daly's wife, Lorraine, was one of the organizers. There were just tons of women joined it. It was, it was all women, of course. It was a women's, they called it the Women's Quarterback Club. They did everything they could to get women to support the team, buy tickets, just because they needed them for survival. I would send a photographer out to get pictures of, of women with their hats when they wore hats, and, and um, people with their corsages. It was a watching a football game, and it was also watching a parade of well-dressed ladies. And they'd make at least two laps around that field so everybody could see their newest outfit. And this was a formal occasion. Women were all dressed up and just like, like they came right from church. Men all had suits on, and it was just like a fancy affair. We walked one day 
to, from our house to the Packer game in high heels with our sister. And let me tell you, we never did it again. <laughs> the women would wear their first stoles, mink stoles, fox scarves. If you sat in back of somebody wearing a fox scarf, there'd be these two beady little eyes looking at you. And it was just, it was another point in time. Meanwhile, the first to step into Lambeau's hard-to-fill coaching shoes is Gene Ronzani. He was hired fairly quickly after Lambeau left. He played football at Marquette University, a state team. Then he went to play for the Bears, coached with the Bears, and he comes to Green Bay. That was hard for fans to overlook, that he had strong ties to Chicago. In Chicago, my dad had a delicatessen that was right across the street from Sheridan Plaza, which is where all the Bear players stayed over the winter, and, and the Cub players were there during the summer. Mama Venisi put on this fantastic Thanksgiving dinner. And one of the gentlemen that was there, one of the players that was there, was Gene Ronzani, very close to the family. He was Jack's freshman coach at Notre Dame. Right away in 1950, he started bringing in a lot of players who had played for the Bears but were over the hill. People were upset about that as well. Ronzani's odd coaching behavior also fails to win any fans. He had his shortcomings as a coach and how he dealt with his players. He takes the team to Grand Rapids, Minnesota for training camp. The middle of nowhere. Goats and sheep graze on the fields at night. And players said the mosquitoes were as big as birds. But that was okay with Gene because he could go fishing. One morning, they were out on the practice field getting ready to work out. And Ronzani pulled up in his car in his fishing boat, told him he was going fishing and have a good day practicing. Before a Packer-Bear game, he would have, his, have the Packers practice inside Joanne Stadium. He'd have his injured players stand in front of the peephole so somebody from the Bears couldn't be peeping through the knot holes and watching practice. The first matchup he had with the Bears when they came back, he won that game, so that really um, was a plus for him. Players told me he never gave them a playbook because he thought that his playbook couldn't end up in George Hallis' hands. Despite Ron Zanny's quirky behavior, he manages to bring some innovative changes to the game. He was kind of ahead of his time from the standpoint that he was running a shotgun formation in the early 1950s. 51, Gene Ronzani comes up with a unique offensive strategy. He's gonna put Tobin Road at the quarterback, but he's only gonna put a fullback with him. Tobin Road is gonna be a running quarterback. The power struggle that began with Curly Lambeau plagues Gene Ronzani. Well, the old saying, you got too many crooks in the kitchen. There was still turmoil in the front office. Still had an answer to the executive committee. That was the criticism of the executive committee in those years, that they were meddling, quote unquote. They also had to appear at a local quarterback club that had been organized in 1949. And those club meetings would sometimes draw a thousand people. and. It opened the floor to, to questions from the audience that the coach had to explain their strategies and their thinking about personnel. 12 wins in three seasons. 1953 is off to another bad start. By late November, the Packers only post two wins. They realize that they're not going to get a winner under Ronzani. So on Friday morning, they called him to tell him that he was being fired and that but they wanted him to resign. 
and they named two of his assistants, Hugh DeVore and Scooter McLean, as co interim coaches for the final, uh, final two games of the season. But Ronzani refused to go away, so he ended up holding himself up in the Packers' offices. And then when the Packers left for the West Coast, uh, he joined them. Followed him out to San Francisco and, and Los Angeles and sat in the press box for at least one of those games and was talking to the sports reporters, kind of telling him, well, the Packers are going to run this play and they're going to play this defense and just entertaining the, uh, the scribes in the press box. It was very unusual. DeVore and McLean finish out the season but cannot coach the team to a win. The Packers end the 53 season in last place in their conference. The third head coach of the Green Bay Packers is announced January 1954. Lyle Blackburn, he coached at Marquette. Packers probably didn't have a lot of money to hire a big name coach. From the very beginning, there were executive committee members who weren't on board with the choice. He was a strict disciplinarian. Apparently he had all kinds of rules that everybody had to follow. He was a stern old former high school and college coach, kind of unbending, not real personable. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, kind of a dictator mentality, which will work if you're winning, but he wasn't winning. The executive committee is meeting with the coach, starting to ask questions, why aren't you doing this? Blackburn's downfall was that the players didn't like him. His first name was Lyle. Everybody called him Liz, but his players called him Lizard. Despite Blackburn's low confidence rating, 1955 has an unexpected start. The Packers take down Detroit. They had actually, prior to that game, beaten us 11 straight times. They were three-time defending Western Conference champions. We couldn't get tickets because the game was sold out. So we walked to the back of the stadium where there was hundreds and hundreds of kids and people. It was a joy to try and find a way to get in. And they had outside guys patrolling with long sticks, and you would try to climb over the fence. And if they would catch you, they'd wrap you gently on the rear end or the hand to get down. It's like a signal was given, and everybody charged the wall. They couldn't stop everybody. And my cousin boosted me up. I got to the top of the wall, looked down, who's below me but a cop. He said, son, get down, don't get hurt, find a place to sit. The Packers got the ball back with about two minutes to go up on the west end and drove the length of the field. Just seconds remaining and Tobin Road hits Gary Knaffel. Scored a touchdown with 20 seconds to go to beat Detroit 2017. Fans come out of the, out of the stands, they swarm the field. They put uh, Gary on their shoulders and then carrying him around. When there was still time on the clock, fans carried Gary Knaffel off the field to the, to the Packer bench. The little kid stuffed 50 cents in his hand and Knaffel tried to find out who the kid was because that's his money. It took him a while to clear the field. Uh, then Fred Cohn came out, kicked the extra point, and when the game ended, the fans mobbed the field again. It was a wonderful start to, to the season. One of the happiest days of my life, actually. During the 1950s, key talent acquisitions help establish a formidable foundation for future team success. This, thanks in part to former head coach Ron Zanny, whose greatest contribution to the Packers proves to be, at the time, an insignificant hire to the front office. He hired Jack Fenisi, fresh out of Notre Dame, a young kid. 
And he was initially hired to keep stats and do a little scouting. He gets hired in September of 1950. And this is how just unimportant at the time it seemed his hiring was. There's a story in the Press Gazette on September 13th talking about how the defense is catching up to the offense. And paragraph after paragraph, and then you get to the last three paragraphs, and they mention the hiring of Jack. Jack Venisi was an outstanding high school football player. They won the national championship, the Catholic championship in the country. And Jack, as a junior, was first team on all Chicago. And that explains why he played football as a freshman at Notre Dame. So when people talk about Jack Venisi as a scout, Jack had the insight of being an ex-player. Jack knew football. Jack was always very, very football-minded. I mean, from eighth grade on, this guy was, he loved football, and he studied football. He was a great evaluator of talent. He sort of used analytics before analytics were even known to exist. He was so dedicated to football, he just put all his energy in finding out what he could find out, who he could find, how he could help. He must have been very good at record keeping, keeping notes and uh, compiling statistics. He used his network of, of friends that he had from Notre Dame and the popularity that he had really around the country to gather a, a lot of exceptional talent. When he came to Green Bay, he just dove into it. I think uh, talent scouts work is perhaps the most frustrating job in America, at least I think so. You spend months and days and hours working trying to gather material and sometimes you'll spend many hours on one particular boy only to see the boy selected choice before yourself and all the work goes out the window. Throughout the decade he goes on to be this incredible talent scout and just digs digs through the files and, and uncovers some of the best players to ever play for the team. 51 they tended to draft players that they didn't have to worry about them going off to, into the military. 52 we're going to draft players with the best talent. Bobby Dillon is to this day the leading interceptor in the history of the Green Bay Packers. Dillon was a perennial All-Pro in the 1950s, uh, played safety. He had one eye. The other eye was glass. They were playing a game in Milwaukee and the glass eye pops out. And the referee comes up and he says, hey Bobby, what would you do if you lost your other eye? He looks up and said, I'd become an official. So. <laughs> That's Bobby Dillon. He had a very strong draft in 52. In 1953, Jim Ringo and Bill Forrester. 1954 is Max McGee. Well, I was a little surprised to be drafted by Green Bay. I wasn't real familiar with Green Bay at all. I, I had been contacted the night before the draft by the Chicago Bears, who said they were going to draft me very high. The Los Angeles Rams contacted me, and I'd never heard from Green Bay. So all at once I looked, pick up the paper the next morning and I said, I'm going to Green Bay. Max McGee might be one of the more underappreciated receivers. He played a number of years in the 50s and made some great catches. 56, Forrest Gregg. Their first round pick was a bust, but they got Forrest Gregg in the second round. He was an incredible tactician. He could place his feet where they needed to be and he could shield the on-rushing linemen. They got Bob Skaronsky in the fifth round, and then they get a real steal in the 17th round, Bart Starr. They, uh, they struck gold with, with drafting him. The 17th round back then with 12 teams was about the 200th pick. Bart Starr 
actually came to us because of a connection between the basketball coach at Alabama. And this basketball coach advised Nisi of this quarterback. At that time, their program was down. Uh, Starr dealt with some injuries in college. He was uh, kind of a misfit for their offense. Bart's biggest asset was his, his uh, intelligence. He was just such a smart quarterback. The total commitment to practice and, and teamwork, all of these things are qualities that are so essential to success today that without them, you cannot be successful. And with them, uh, you cannot fail. It took almost five years for them to realize that he was a steal. The Packers own two of the top four picks in the 1957 NFL Draft. They select Notre Dame quarterback and Heisman Trophy winner Paul Horning with the first. Ron Kramer of Michigan with the fourth. Paul Horning and Ron Kramer. Bonanza. I didn't even know where in the hell Green Bay was in those days, you know. I wanted to go to play with the Bears. That was that was my hope, to be drafted by the Bears. Of course, you know, the Packers had the first choice and they picked me. He was the bonus pick. They had a special pick even before the first round started and the Packers in 57 got that. I got close to 30,000. That was the highest paid rookie ever at that time. All around talent, he could run, pass, kick, it's just very versatile. Jack would tell me, he said, Paul Horning could be the greatest ever, and Horning loved Jack. I wanted to play well for him. I wanted to make the people with the Green Bay Packers, the coaches, say, you know that Jack Venisi, he was right. He told us Horning was gonna be a hell of a football player, and he was. One of the advantages the Packers had throughout the 1950s was that uh, they usually drafted high, because they had a losing record. They just had tremendous success drafting. The theory of the Packers will, will draft the best available football player at the time. And uh, even though we may end up with three halfbacks or three tackles or maybe two guards, we don't know ourselves at the time. But uh, we hope to have the best available football player because you can always use good football players. 58, it's maybe the greatest draft in history. Dan Curry, who was an outstanding linebacker, Jim Taylor, Ray Nitschke, Jerry Kramer. The top part of that draft may have been the best the Packers have ever had. Jim Taylor, certainly the toughest pullback of that era. He ran over people, gained a thousand yards five straight years. Then you have Ray Nitschke, middle linebacker, considered one of the best middle linebackers of all time. I felt very comfortable on the football field. I knew I could compete against anybody. I was always confident in my ability. I knew I could play. It was just a matter of playing uh, what position. I was a fullback in college and uh, played linebacker. And, and uh, my first year, I didn't, they didn't know where to play me. But then I settled down and played middle linebacker. He was a tough character and um, was an anchor of our defense for many years. That offense just doesn't go without Jerry Kramer on the line, blocking and, and running it. Turned out to be one of the greatest guards ever. I remember signing my contract. Uh, and I didn't, we didn't have an agent, we didn't have any information, we had virtually no knowledge. So I asked my coach, who was a very bright man, what kind of money should I ask for if I, they want me to sign a contract? He said, Jerry, if you can get 7,000, you're doing really well. And so I sat down with Vern Llewellyn, 
And uh, Burns says, Jerry, we'd like you to sign a contract. What are you thinking about? 8,000. Okay, sign here. And I left a lot on the table, I guess. But uh, I said, I want a bonus. And I get to Green Bay in the first season, and they hold it out of my check. And they explained to me that it wasn't a bonus, it was an advance. So I got $77.50 and a $250 advance. Blackburn was the one that made the picks, although he admitted he leaned heavily on Venisi's recommendation. Quality picks. Strong players. But Blackburn cannot coach them to a win. In comes Scooter McLean. Scooter in 58, well, that was a total disaster. Scooter had been the backfield coach for the Packers since 1951. He was a real nice guy. Nice guys don't win, and Scooter was the perfect example. When he becomes the head coach, he put the players on an honor system. Essentially, they're gonna uh, manage their behavior off the field. He was too much of a, a friend with the players. He wasn't a disciplinarian. He played cards with the players, and there were no rules at all. It was something else. The game was almost like an interruption to their week. Well, we have to go play football for three hours now. Certainly the low point of the season was when they got annihilated in Baltimore. It's a kind of an overcast, rainy day. It's a light, misty rain. And it starts in the morning about 10 o'clock and it rains all day long. And uh, we're down 56 to nothing. The Baltimore Colts had a mascot, a girl on a horse. A white stallion that ran around the stadium every time they scored. They were scoring so many touchdowns, the horse started wheezing. And they thought their mascot was going to die. We almost killed him that day. He, he, was, he was lathered up by the time the game was over. One ten and one. Worst season ever. Fred Smith said the Packers in 1958 overwhelmed one opponent, underwhelmed 10, and whelmed one. You had a number of players that weren't sure that they wanted to return after 1958. Young guys that were had played three or four years that had decided to leave the game. If they could make more money ranching in Texas or doing other things than they could play in the game. Throughout the 1950s, the Packers keep losing and losing and losing. It doesn't matter. With hope, passion, and determination, the executive committee, city of Green Bay, and the fans lay a foundation that sets the stage for greater things to come. Old City Stadium was built for East High School, and the Packers were allowed to play there. We had a real small dressing room, and our lockers were very, very small, and uh, there was rats in the dressing room. We had to hang everything up to keep the rats from eating. City Stadium behind Green Bay East High School was not up to NFL standards. Teams hated playing there. Walked in the locker room over there for the first time, and I couldn't see all the way across the room, didn't realize there were other people in there. When I walked in, it was so dark. We had a, a space heater. It would be cold in the wintertime, and uh, I think we had about two showers, about all we had. The doctor sewed my eye up in the locker room one day, and that scar still shows. He couldn't see both ends of the, st uh, the cut. And it was old, rickety. You'd go up there and you rock and rolled a little bit. Well, there wasn't much building there actually at all. It was just a wooden bleachers is what it really was. John Stedman, the great wordsmith who was a sports columnist in Baltimore said, it reminded him of a chicken coop. For a pro football team, 
You shouldn't be playing in a rickety old stadium like that. Teams had reached the point where they simply didn't want to play here in a stadium with a capacity of 25,000. The Packers weren't getting the revenue that they needed from it. Owners are not getting the kind of gate that they want when they come to, to Green Bay. There was a lot of pressure on the Packers then to do something about a stadium or else move the franchise to Milwaukee. The league was telling us that if you don't build a new stadium, get a better facility, you might lose your franchise. It wasn't a case of should we or shouldn't we build a new stadium, it was we have to build a new stadium or we're gonna lose our team. Steel stadiums were coming into play that seated 40, 50,000 people and Green Bay didn't have that and Green Bay needed that and the Packers needed that. In 1954, they started discussing different options. One suggestion was to build a new stadium on the site of the existing city stadium. And just enlarge it to 32,000. But there was some opposition to it. Fierce debate begins over location before building a new stadium is even confirmed. The decades-old east side of town, west side of town rivalry rears its ugly head. Green Bay was still very much a city divided. If you're not familiar with Green Bay, the Fox River goes right down the middle of it. And quite often, never the twain shall meet. Unlike a lot of cities where the big discussion is about how much money we're gonna spend, uh, that was a consideration, but the much bigger debate. Eastsiders wanted the stadium to stay on the east side. Westsiders wanted it to move over to the west side. With CBS television money entering the game, financing a new stadium looks more and more promising. The first time a game was televised in Green Bay was 1956. The Green Bay Packers never had such good publicity. And there was a big debate at that time whether they should televise games in home territories, and the NFL didn't for a long time. Packers were bringing in a little money from radio and television. We were a small market. Teams made their own deals with radio and television. It wasn't a universal league thing. When Commissioner Rozelle came in and they negotiated the first national television contracts, all the revenue was to be equally shared. Pete Rozelle and some of the more influential owners, the Maras, the Hallises, determined that television revenue should be split evenly. It wasn't until the TV contracts hit um, at the end of the 50s and early 60s that the team started to break even and show a little bit of a profit. That equal sharing of the TV revenue and sharing of the gate receipts in a generous way for the visiting team has become the underpinning for the labor agreement with the players. Without the television package revenue sharing, we would not be here. That really played a big part in the Packers surviving. It was obvious that they needed a new stadium or they were gonna get left behind. We had to have a referendum vote, which was very important. This referendum, which is going to authorize essentially a million dollars to build a new stadium. One wouldn't believe that you'd have to do that. But it did take a referendum because the people thought it would raise their taxes. As a civic leader, the Press Gazette is driving the development of City Stadium. They are driving indirectly the growth of the Packers. The Press Gazette's take historically was if it's good for the Packers, it's good for Green Bay. More than 1,000 fans turn out for a March 31st pep rally in support of the referendum. Packers co-founder Curly Lambeau attends, as did an old Packer friend and foe, George S. Hallis. Hallis is the bitter enemy. He's the head coach of the Bears, the owner, but he has helped the Packers throughout their history. He wanted Green Bay to survive. He, he wanted the league to survive. 
And he realized that Green Bay had to do something to keep their franchise. George Hallis was a great friend of the Packers, did many favors for the team over the years, but more often than not, he was motivated by what was best for the Chicago Bears. The visiting teams are gonna get a bigger share of money to come up and play in this larger stadium. That meant keeping the Packer-Bear rivalry intact. As much as George might not like the team, he can't imagine a league without the Green Bay Packers. Hallis spoke and basically told the people of Green Bay, pass the referendum or you're going to lose your team. The $960,000 bond passes. One question remains, east side of town or west? They were worried that if they picked one on the east side, west siders would vote against the stadium and vice versa. Having the Packers on the east side all those years, the east side didn't want to give that up. But there was no parking at all at the stadium, so they all parked in uh, residential lots uh, in, in that area. Local politicians and the councilmen tried to settle on a site in their discussions following the referendum. The aldermen on the east side and the aldermen on the west side got into some issues. In the end, the Packers decided that they needed to get an outside consulting firm involved. 15 potential sites are surveyed, including the current city stadium location. Osborne Engineering recommends the new stadium be built at the corner of Highland Avenue, which is now Lombardi Avenue, and Ridge Road. Green Bay's west side of town. Cost, traffic analysis, and parking are all considerations, but it's the elevation of the site that is most appealing. What they came up with was buying a piece of farmland. This property here was our farm for many years, starting in the late 30s. One of the big selling points to the engineer was the fact that there was a hill. The, the site was sloping. It had a, quite a severe pitch to it. How do you put a football stadium on a hillside? And that was an ideal spot for the bowl. I could walk out the back door and see the stadium. What he came up with was a design which buried about a third of the stadium into the ground and used material that's excavated as fill material to try and level out the site as much as possible. We've made our plea to city council. Uh, one of the councilmen said, well, how many seats are you thinking about, Mr. Atkinson? Well, I said, uh, it ought to be designed for 50,000. He said, oh my goodness, don't mention that. I think we're out of our mind. He said, well, how, how would you start? I said, well, 30, 35,000, but if we design it for 50,000, uh, then we will save our money later on. The new stadium is completed by September 1957. It seats 32,154 and is officially named Green Bay City Stadium. Dedication ceremonies are held in the last weekend of September with the largest parade in the city's history, attended by 70,000 faithful fans. I never thought it would be done in Green Bay, but they did it. Just a beautiful stadium. and. First stadium ever built for pro football. Bell called it the greatest thing that had happened to the league. One of his teams now had their own stadium. I want to say that I 
Never saw anything like this. For 60 or 70,000 people to do this, for the Green Bay Packers and the city of Green Bay, it certainly should set an example for some of the largest cities of what enthusiasm and uh, desire and love of sports will do. And in my opinion, there wouldn't be any professional football without the Packers and their tradition in Green Bay. Green Bay still is the smallest market in the National Football League. And when you think of Little Green Bay doing what it did at that time, it gripped the entire community. Well, it's the biggest thing that Green Bay has experienced. <laughs> um, it was perfect from start to finish. The bands, the floats, the parade, um, the luminaries, all the politicians that you can possibly imagine. And it was such a special event. That day, of course, they brought up all these celebrities. Well, it was uh, fun to watch uh, the dig dignitaries, Vice President Nixon, uh, James Arness, Miss America. That was quite something for Green Bay. A big new stadium, who could improve on that? And the Packers beat the Bears at the opener. What was it, um, 21 to 17? Ed Brown of the Bears scored the very first touchdown here at, in Lambeau Field. Then Billy Houghton scored the first touchdown that a, a Packer ever scored. Yeah, it was 14 all at the half, and then in the second half, the Bears got a field goal. We're up 17-14. Key play in the game, the Bears went for it on fourth down right around midfield, and we stopped them. It's a pass from Bay Pirelli to Gary Canafo, right underneath the goalpost. It was a great day. It was a great day. It really was. The Bears had won the Western Division Championship the year before in 56, so we were not equal to the Bears, but that day we were because of that inspiration of the new stadium. It's all here. Talented players, ardent fans, a beautiful new stadium to bring the championship home to, but no head coach. 1958, following a single disastrous season, 1-10-1, and the worst in franchise history, McLean quits. The team under Ronzani, Blackburn, and McLean could not win on the road. We were acquiring talent but we still were not putting it all together. They didn't have a coach that knew what to do with them. They only won 12 road games in nine years between 50 and 58. Jack Venisi had set the table. He'd say, Sam, he said, on black and white, we've got the best team in the league. He said, I can't understand why the coaches can't utilize these gentlemen. A lot of talented players, but they were wandering. They, they were you know, going out on the town late at night and having fun. They didn't know how to win. They needed the right coach come in and, and use the talent. Impatient and untrusting fans rallied to get Curly Lambeau back to lead this team to victory. And there was talk about this big division between uh, Curly and the Packers, but the Packers meant a lot to Curly. There was a um, restaurant in Los Angeles called the Ram's Horn. Horning and McGee and Ron and Fuzzy and I and five or six of us went down there to have a beer and Curly was there. So he comes over at the table and sits down with us. There was a push to actually get him to try to come back and be the coach. Curly said, yeah, I'd love to come back. I'd love to coach again. I, that'd be great. His accomplishments basically were unmatched. He won six NFL championships in the smallest city in the league. We know Curly's history and we know his championships and we know where he's been and it seems like it's a wonderful idea and a wonderful change. There was a groundswell of support 
for him. A number of fans scheduled a rally at the Riverside Ballroom, hoping that the Packers would rehire him. Lambeau returns to Green Bay and tells the executive committee he is interested in the team's general manager position. They are not interested in him. The decision at that time was we got to make a significant upgrade. Lambeau was, was not the, the man to run the team anymore. They felt that they, they really had to spend some time interviewing the people, bringing them in, and making sure that this was going to be a good fit. The president, who of course was Dominic Olenicic at the time, he, he and his executive committee determined that they would hire a combination general manager, head coach, and he would give him total authority over the football operation. My dad relied a lot on advice that he received from Burt Bell, who was the commissioner at that time, as well as George Hallis. He needed somebody who could take charge. It took him six weeks to hire a coach. Forrest Ivashevsky from Iowa was actually the Packers' first choice in 1959. I don't know whether he was first, second, third, or whatever. There were more than just Forrest Ivashevsky. Ivashevsky had been in Green Bay interviewing, and the board was all for Ivashevsky. And all of a sudden, the 11th hour, Ivashevsky withdrew his application. And then they named a guy that had had a his only head coaching job was a high school. How could they make that kind of mistake? When Curly wanted to come back and you go with a high school coach, it really, really didn't make any sense. John Torinas was on the executive committee and uh, when his name came up, he said, who the hell is Lombardi? My dad used to take me to practices at the field. My boyfriend was Paul Horning. That's why I wanted to go to practice. So I decided when they were at the game that I was going to walk up there and find Paul Horning. Five so, years old. Five years old, I walked up to the stadium You were in the seats at two-minute warning, and she heard over the PA system, Well, Mrs. R. Daly, please come to the press box. We were down on the 10th row. I got up there, and then they told me, No, she's not here. Try the lost and found. I was in the and lost. And that's where she was in the lost and found. <laughs> One sports writer got wind of the story, so he wrote a little story about it, somewhat embellished, of course. 